We're starting week five of our Ephesians series, and we are starting in chapter two of Ephesians. And we're going to look at verses one through ten today of chapter two. And I'm going to pray. And as I pray, I also want to lift up. We've got four people from this church on a missions trip to Haiti right now. And so we've got Larry and Annette and Valerie and Elizabeth all down on the ground, staying at an orphanage in Haiti for the next, I think, 10 days or so. And so as we pray for this uh, our time together in the Word, we're also going to lift up those guys as well. So, Lord, thank you this morning for the privilege and honor it is to dig into your Word and to hear what you're saying to us today. God, we just think of the, the, the team that's down in Haiti right now. God, we ask for your protection God, we ask that you would use them to minister and to bless and to care for the, the children in that orphanage and for all the other kids they come across while they're down there. Lord, we pray for fruitful ministry for them. And God, give them the strength that they need to not turn off or get laid back or get tired, but to press on and press in and go with full strength for the whole week. Lord, thank you for them, God. Have your hand upon them. Let their ministry be powerful through your spirit, enabling them. And God, I pray that this week we'd also remember them in our prayers. God, we, just, we also ask for our time together as we look into your word that you would equip and prepare us to hear your word, open our ears to understand. God, thank you for the time we have. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going, we're going to look at Ephesians 2, and like I said, we're in week 5, but in order for us to understand the second chapter of Ephesians, we really need to do our work and understand what he's saying prior to um, what he says in, in chapter 2, because it all runs together. The, the chapters and verses of the Bible were not written as when they wrote the Bible, they weren't writing. Paul's not writing to Ephesian church and says, okay, this is chapter 2, verse 1. They added those verses and chapters about 1551. And so that's much later than what they previously wrote this. And so for us to understand what he's about to say in chapter 2, we have to understand this book as a whole. And we're going to look at what he says in the first chapter, the last half of the first chapter. We talked about it last week, but going back over that again, he is praying to God for the church. And here are some of the things that the Apostle Paul begins to pray for the church in Ephesus. He prays for them to have a revelation of Christ Jesus. He says, I want you to know Jesus. I want you to know Christ. But not only that, but I want you to know the hope to which we've been called to. This glorious hope. There's a hope in Christ Jesus. This is, I don't want you just to kind of read about it and move on. I want you to understand it. I want you to dig deep into this because there's a hope to which we've been called. And not only that, he says, I want you to know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. So there's this amazing power of Almighty God that he's working towards us. And I don't want you just to, to think about it. I want you to know this. I want you to know the immeasurable greatness. He also goes on to say, I want you to see Christ Jesus preeminent in all things, and specifically in the church, as the, Christ is the head of the church and of all things. So he says, I want you to see and understand these important things. Now what he goes on to do is he goes on to answer his prayer. So he's praying for them in the first, 
in the first part of, uh, the, of chapter 1. And he said, I want you to know the hope. I want you to know, have a revelation of Jesus Christ. But now I'm going to tell you about what I just prayed for. So he's answering his own prayer. And he starts off in the second chapter of Ephesians in verses 1 through 3. And this is what he writes. And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And he goes on to say this. Guys, it's worse than you think. It is bad. This is not good. This is not a good indictment of who we are. And he basically says this, that we're dead men walking. We're dead men walking. He says, you know what? You think you're alive because you can breathe and eat and enjoy a sunset. But he says, you know what? You're dead in your trespasses and sins. So he's going to go on and describe what that means for us to be dead. And this is how he describes it. Number one, he says this, you followed the course of this world. You followed the course of this world. You know what? If you watch advertising or you listen to radio for any amount of time, the world has a system that it wants you to believe and buy into. So it says, you know what? Here's how you find true life. You get a new car. You get some clothes from the gap. Okay, you... You uh, get a new Swiffer mop. You um, get some new cologne. You go to ESPN Sports Zone. You have lots of sex. You get more Doritos. You ride on a horse on the beach. You go on a cruise ship with Disney characters. Okay? And so they ultimately present you, look, if you want to find happiness, if you want to find fulfillment, do this. All you got to do is buy this. Go here. And so they promise us this life, this fulfillment, this purpose. And it's all and ultimately apart from Christ. No one's saying, hey, look, find life in God. Saying find life in everything but God. So they want you to believe that if we buy the new, the new truck, our life will be more fulfilling because we can go camping more and we'll ride in parades and people will clap for us and we'll do all these things just because we have a new car. And so they want us to believe this. And we follow this. We bought into the system. We've all done this in some way. And not only that, but he says this. You followed the course of the world, but you're also following the prince of the power of the air. Which is a nice way of saying you're following Satan. You're following Satan. And what he wants to say by this is this. We're spiritually dead. We are spiritually dead. Unable to respond to God. And it's like the fish hook that the worm is on and that we, we is alluring and is tempting and we're enticed by it and the fish bites in and he's hooked. He's caught. There's no way out. And it's like that. Satan does that for us as well. Tempts us and allures us and draws us away from the things of God. Now he also says this though. He says, not only were you following the course of the, of the world, not only were you following the prince of the air, but he says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So at, at this point, he, he goes from making statements about you're doing this, you're doing that. And we can read this and think that's great because 
they're experiencing this stuff. This is talking about the people in Ephesus. And what he does here is he changes. He says, now we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. He says, all of us. This is, this is looking at every single one of us. In the passions of our flesh is this, we're given over to the cravings and desires. And so John Stott, in reflecting on these verses, he writes this. Before God, we are both rebels and failures. Before God, we're both rebels and failures. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to have a summer camp for kids? We'll call it rebels and failures. And it was like, put it out there by the church. No one's going to buy into that. No one's going to go to that camp. No one wants to send their kid to the rebel and failure camp. But this is what the word of God is doing here. And we can't escape this. And the, in my, the thing that I struggled with this week is that I read, I read these verses and I see what it's, I see as, as Paul is beginning to talk about this, is that I read this and was unmoved by it. I thought, you know what? That's great for them. Okay, so I'm following the course of the world, following Satan. Um, I'm doing whatever I feel like it. And it's just like, it's, it's unmoving to me. And I want to read these with understanding and say, God, what is this saying for me? Because if he's going to go on to describe the glory and the greatness and the hope that we have in Christ, we've got to understand where we've come from. See, Christ Jesus isn't going to be glorious to us if we see ourselves as pretty much okay. Life is pretty much good. I've got nice things and I'm pretty much healthy and I've got some good relationships. And so why do I need Christ? I've got all this stuff. But what he's saying, there's something more going on under the surface that we need to understand so that we can see this, the hope that we have in Christ is glorious and great and majestic. So we can understand this. And so in the end, he says, you followed the course of the world, followed the prince of the air, lived in the passions of our flesh. And he goes on to say this result of our sin and rebellion against God is this, that by nature, we were children of wrath. By nature, we are children of wrath. Okay. You know what this means? That we're marked or destined for God's wrath. That apart from Christ Jesus, we are marked or destined for God's wrath. Sinclair Ferguson writes this about God's wrath because we think wrath, we think angry and, 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 and just losing it. Here's what Sinclair Ferguson writes about wrath, about God's wrath. Wrath is a settled hostility of God's holy will towards everything that rebels against him. God does not fly off the handle as we do in a fit of, in a fit of rage. No, the terrible element of God's wrath is that besides being perfectly controlled, it is totally concentrated, absolutely just, and completely holy. That's how he describes God's wrath. He's not like us. And so as I read this, I began to think, how have I been enslaved to sin? How have, where, where does that put me? Where do I see my life prior to Christ? I thought this, I grew up in church. I went to church almost every Sunday my entire life. Went to, went to, um, went to all the meetings, heard all the messages, sang all the songs, knew all the verses, knew all the right answers. And what happened was I began to get self-righteous. I thought, you know what? I'm pretty good on my own. I've got this church thing figured out. I've attended enough. 
I know all these things. I know more, I know more than, than most of the rest. I attend mo- more than most other people. And so I thought to myself, I'm pretty good on my own. And what that led to, in my st- because I thought that in my standing with Christ, I was good on my own, it led to pride. And so my relationship with other people is affected by that because I'm, I'm better than you. I'm better than Matt. I've gone to church more than Matt has. I know more verses than Matt. So therefore, not only am I pretty good before God, I'm also pretty much better than most people. You know what that, what that led to is this. It led towards apathy, towards God and his word. Because not only did I, was I better than I thought before God and better than people, but what it also did is led me to think, why do I need God then? I mean, I'm pretty good on my own. I got this church thing down. I got the verses down. I got the songs down. I can raise my hands when I worship. Why would I need God? So that led towards this an apathy, just an indifference towards God and towards His Word. And that had me in its clutches. And it's almost like, as I begin to think about this, this, first, this first section, this, as he talks about us being dead men walking, it was like this. I thought, I don't know if some of you guys, this is like the, the, the service where we have all the kids, so most of you guys can relate to this, but before you have a child, you go to like these Lamaze classes, right? These like birthing classes at the hospital. And in these birthing classes, you learn about, you know, the, the, the stages of labor and what the hospital's like and what to expect. And you go through all these, all these things in the hospital that they, they tell you about in, in your classes. And what they encourage you to do is they encourage you to make a birth plan, right? So they say, you know what? We're going to empower you to make a birth plan. So when you get to the hospital, here's how things are going to go. We're going to get to the hospital. We're going to have music playing, you know, relaxing music playing on the speakers. And we're going to have snacks in the fridge. And I want to make sure that, you know, the hot tub's good and hot so Michelle can, can get in there and relax and just, you know, we'll get out and we'll have the baby in about, you know, 20 minutes after that. And it's just like this, everything's planned out, man. You are empowered to make these decisions. And you know what? Five minutes until, you know, she goes into labor, you actually believe that this is what's going to happen. This is the way the labor is going to go down. I've got a plan. It's on paper. Everyone told me, hey, you should do this. And so we feel in control and empowered. We're going to call the shots. That's not the way it goes down, okay? That baby has a life of its own and a mind of its own and a plan of its own, and it doesn't care about your birth plan, okay? The baby didn't ask mom and dad, so what's your birth plan? I like to follow, I like to go accordingly to your birth plan. I want things to work out for you the way you want them to work out. But that's not the way it happens. So we're deceived into thinking that this birth plan is going to be the thing that controls, my, controls the way this whole labor thing is going to go, and it doesn't work out that way, and we're devastated. But we also think that of our own lives, don't we? That we're the master and commander of our lives. We're the ones calling the shots. I'm the one who makes the decisions for myself. I'm the one who's in control. I answer to me and me alone. But this verse has something different to say about our lives. It doesn't say we're the master and commander of our lives. It says that we're dead in sin. That we're dead in our trespasses. It says that we're trapped and enslaved to pride and lust and greed 
in selfishness and in anger. And the bottom line, this is the bottom line, we're unable to save ourselves and there's nothing we can do about it. We're unable to save ourselves and there's nothing we can do about it. No amount of church attendance, no amount of plans, no amount of prayers, no amount of songs. Now, he transitions from that to verse 4. Now, this is verse 4 is the crucial verse for this whole passage, okay? Because this is the verse that the rest of the whole thing is the hinge verse. The verse where this whole passage turns on says this, but God, but God, but God, here we are looking at our lives, realizing that we're dead in our sins and trespasses, realizing there's nothing we can do about it, realizing that, that we are enslaved to the world and to the deceitfulness the, the of, of, of riches and, and, and all these other things. Then it says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He says that while we were dead, while we were far from God, while we were doing our own things, living our own lives, he says, but God, but God, he says, but God made us alive together with Christ. That's what he did. You know what? That is why we planted this church. Because we believe this is a message that needs to be proclaimed in everything that we do in all of our lives, that this, that this message that we were dead and now God makes us alive in Christ Jesus is a message that we need to proclaim to, to our families, in our own lives, in our neighborhoods, in our area, in the towns. This is why we plant the church. This is why we go through all the work. Because this truth is true. So it says... While we were dead, God made us alive together with Christ. Why did he do that? Verse 4 says this. Because he is rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us. You know what? God is not like us. You know what? There is a limit to our mercy and our love. There's a certain limit we get to with mercy, isn't there? where we give so much mercy and then we had enough. I'm done with mercy. I've given all that I had to give. My mercy level is, 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 is topped off. I can't give any more mercy. I'm done. But God is not like that. It says he is rich in mercy. He is rich. And also says his great love. I wrote this down. God's mercy and love is undeniably seen in the salvation of the rebellious and undeserving. That's, what it, that's where we see it most clearly. That's where we see His mercy and love. And He says this in verse 7. He says, So that in the coming ages He might show 
the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For all eternity, this will be our message. This will be the message we go back to. That in the coming ages, we will go back and we will see that God's riches of His grace that have been lavished upon us and given to us, that this will be our song. This will be our message. This is what everyone will see. Brian Chappelle writes this, that after being a pastor for a number of years and having people come to him and say, because of what I've done, because of who I am, God should not love me. And so he says this. So after people say that, you know what? God can't love me. You don't know what I've done. You haven't seen the things I've said, the way I've treated other people. God can't love me because of that. He writes this, that these words are true. On the basis of justice alone, a holy God should not love the sinful. Yet, having dispensed his justice in the judgment of his son, our God not only delights to extend us his mercy, but by his power enables us to respond to his love. That is what God has done. He enables us to respond to his love. He gives us his love and his mercy. Now we look at verses 8 and 10. and he, The Apostle Paul goes on to say this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He says this, Saved by grace through faith. Saved by grace through faith. So what is faith? John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, the song, said, This is faith, renouncing of everything we are apt to call our own and relying wholly upon the blood and righteousness and intercession of Jesus. There's a renouncing of the good things that I've done to earn approval and acceptance by God. There's a re- you know what? I'm not going to rely on the amount of church I've attended, the amount of money I've given, the amount of prayers I've prayed and the way that I've prayed them, the amount of scripture I've read. I'm going to renounce those things, not as getting me favor and approval by God. I'm going to fully rest and trust in Jesus Christ for favor and approval by God. That believing that Jesus Christ in his life and death and resurrection paid for my sins. He died for me. That because of his life, his perfect life, his perfect life of obedience, believing that that was accredited now to me, that we receive favor from God. And there's an implication of faith. If I came to you and said, as you're watching TV in your house, and you just got your show on, and I came to you and said, look, the second story of your house is engulfed in flames. Your house is burning down. This is not a good thing. You need to get out of here. And you said, you know what? Yeah, you know what? I believe that, and I'm sure it's go- that's what's going on. But you know what? i got to finish this show. I'm watching Lost, and I don't want to miss anything. And so you may believe, and you may make mental like agreement to the fact that your house is burning down, But there's implications for that. The implication is you get out of the house. You run as fast as you can. And we can read the scriptures and read about 
what it means to have faith in Christ and to understand that he died for us and just make mental agreement. Okay, that's great. I believe it. Okay, it's good. And we go on with our lives like nothing happened. There's implications for our faith. And this is the implication that we fully trust in Christ Jesus. We do not trust in ourselves or in our good works or anything else. We fully trust in Jesus Christ. And so just in case, as we read verse 8, verse 7, and we think, you know what? Maybe I do bring something to the table. Talks about faith. We think, you know what? Well, what's this faith thing going on? It says, you know, we're saved by grace through faith. Don't I bring the faith to the table? I mean, don't I bring something to the table? God, surely this faith thing that I exercise, that, that activates His grace towards me, that, that, that I can see and now understand, you know what? He says this. He says, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. That even this faith, even this faith that we exercise is a gift from God. That this faith that we exercise isn't what activates God's grace towards us because God's grace towards us has been since the beginning of time. That this, this faith that we exercise is a gift from God. It is a gift from God. That we don't come to God and say, God, look, you saved me because I had faith and because I did something. I did a good thing. I had faith in you. That's a good thing, surely. So that adds something. He says, even that faith is a gift from God. It says, not a result of works that no one may boast. You know what? When you get paid at the end of the week, you don't go to your boss in his office and say, boss, oh, I'm so grateful for this check. Oh, you're so kind to me. Oh, your mercy is just, is new every Friday. It's like I get a check from you and, and oh, I'm just so, you are just so good to me. Thank you for this paycheck. We don't do that. Because we've brought something to the table. We worked hard all week. And so we come and we get a paycheck because that's our due. That's what we get. That's, our, that's what we deserve to get. And he says this, that this faith and this salvation that we have, it says, not a result of works so that no one may boast. You know what? If I have to work for it, it's no longer a gift. It's a payment. And with Almighty God and our salvation, it says, it's a gift. We didn't work for it. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We didn't do so much. And you know what this does for us? It eliminates pride and boasting and entitlement. What this does for us is create humility. Because I begin to understand that even this is a gift from God. That we all stand before Almighty God. Not because of the things that I do, and the things that I say, and the church that I attend but because of the mercy of Jesus Christ and the love of the Father. And in verse 10 it says this, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And now we are set free to obey God. And these good works, even the good works that we live our life and do good works by, is a gift from God. Even that is a gift from God. God prepared us to do these things, prepared them for us before we even showed up. It wasn't like we bring something to the table, even this. He says, no, even in this good works of your life is a gift from God. 
we have to understand that even the good things that we do is God's kindness towards us that we're even able to do them. I want to read a testimony of a girl that wrote this testimony for me a number of years ago. But I believe it does a good job of describing the very text that we've read in a clear way. This is what she writes. This is a true story. I often hear people comment that they would do anything to relive their childhood or teenage years. I can't relate. Nothing traumatic ever happened to me during that time, but those years are filled with memories of chasing an elusive happiness. We moved several times as I was growing up, and born with each new move was a hope that this would be the place I would finally discover how to be truly happy. In an attempt to fill this missing void in my life, I dabbled in all sorts of different lifestyles. Each group of people I came across gave the impression that they had indeed discovered who they were and what they were meant to live for. For some of them, it was music, others, drugs. And I found myself spending hours getting ready for, for school to fit in with the popular crowd one year and the next year rolling out of bed five minutes before the bus came to go hang out with the grunge kids. Needless to say, disappointment awaited me every turn I took until my freshman year of college. One of my most vivid memories was finding myself lying in my apartment, reviewing the life I had lived. I had tried to live a good life and had fallen flat on my face time and time again. I had done things I swore I would never do, things I still couldn't believe I had done. I had found myself arrested in juvenile hall, in ungodly relationships, messed up from drugs or alcohol, hurting friends or family to get my own way, all in this futile attempt to be happy. And I remember crying at the realization that there was no hope for me, no out, no way for me to be good enough to please my family or myself, let alone ever please God. I had tried and I had failed. Apathy set in like a wet blanket over my heart. So when I wandered into a college Bible study one cold February Thursday night, I wasn't looking for answers to my problems, let alone God. I was just looking for a friend to go hang out with that night. And due to my endless search of happiness, I had several acquaintances in these Christian groups, so I wasn't uncomfortable. If anything, I was hardened to their kindness. I had given up on ever changing or finding happiness. So I hung out with my friend for a while, met a girl who was from a town near my hometown. We talked for a while and agreed to have lunch on Saturday. I didn't think much of it until I realized that she would probably try to convince me to start going to church and to Bible study and to be a good person. She didn't know my absolute inability to ever live a, a good life, so I figured I would be doing us both a favor if I didn't show up. And that weekend I lived it up. We went party hopping and drinking so when I woke up on Saturday, nothing but sleep was on my agenda. But I had this nagging feeling that I was supposed to do something. I shrugged it off and went back to sleep. When I awoke with the same feeling several minutes later, I began worrying that I was supposed to be at work and had forgotten. And after calling into work, though I felt a little better, when I realized that the commitment I was neglecting was lunch with that Christian girl. Looking at the clock, I convinced myself that not only did I not want to go but I only had three minutes to get there. Content with my decision, I went back to sleep. 
But when my deep slumber was ended a couple of minutes later, with that same nagging feeling, I figured I might as well go. After all, I wasn't getting any sleep, and I needed to eat anyway. Plopping down across from this girl, I couldn't help but be a bit amused at my state. I was hungover, had illegal substances in my back pocket, could barely remember the trouble I had gotten into the night before, and was facing this smiling, happy, good little Christian girl. I was sure the meal was bound to be awkward and stilted, and that we would have nothing in common. Two hours later, she had proven me wrong. I can't tell you the things we talked about, but I can tell you how surprised I was to hear myself say, okay, so tell me about this Christian stuff. She must have shared the gospel with me several times over the next 20 minutes. But in my disappointment, I looked at her and said, well, that's nice for you, but you don't know me. I can't be good. I've tried over and over again. That way of life sounds good for you, but not for someone like me. I just can't do it. I'll never forget when she looked at me straight in the eye and said, but don't you know that that's just where God wants you to be? You can't even be good enough for God on your own. None of us can. That's the whole reason Jesus came, so that he could pay the price for all of our sins and also give to us all of his good. We can't be good, but he was good enough for all of us. This isn't about you trying to be a good person. It's all about admitting that you can't and receive his goodness as your own. It might have been this first time in my life that I've ever been speechless. Was this true hope for me? After giving up on the world and all that it had to offer, was this girl offering me a real, true hope? I looked at her and said, Okay, but I have to ask you one question. Are you truly, genuinely happy? Please don't lie to me. I need to know the truth. To which she looked straight in my eye and responded, I've never been happier about anything in my whole life. Okay, I responded. How do I do this? And so began my life as a Christian. Within a couple of months, I found myself living in new Christian roommates, getting deeply involved in campus outreach and Bible studies, plugged into a strong church and experienced a deep peace from my new relationship with God. I spent the next four and a half years pouring out my life to serve my Lord and know Him better. There were amazing experiences and difficult challenges, but the Lord brought me through all of them, stronger and closer to Him than ever before. I look back on that day in early February and I am forever grateful to that girl who was bold enough to get together with a hopeless case like me. I'm grateful to the fact that she didn't think I was beyond the hope of the gospel. She knew well the power of her God to change even the most messed up lives for his glory. So as I look at my husband and family, I can't help but think how grateful they must be to this girl too. How different all of their lives are because of the power of this gospel she shared with me. Without this gospel, this good news, that there is a way out of the confinement of our own sin, there would be no hope for us as a family. No hope for my children to live a happy, full life for the glory of God. No hope to have a marriage that the way it was created to be, full of forgiveness and grace and love. But what a hope we have. Our hope is in our God and in His power and love. And what a strong, enduring hope It is. I've never been happier about anything in my entire life. I read that testimony, and it every time I read that, it's powerful to me because that's a story 
of my wife. That was her life. That's what happened to her. And that girl that led her to the Lord was my cousin. My cousin Amy led my wife to the Lord. And I'm forever grateful for, her, for doing that. But that is a story and a testimony of the power of God to break us out of our, our, our sin and the death that it leads to and then of our lives where we're trying to do things our own way. It's a story of God's grace and His mercy and His kindness. This verse, these verses are, are so good because it has God at the center of all of them. We're not the center of these verses. This is a story of who God is and what He's done in Christ Jesus. We were dead in sin, but God made us alive in Christ. We walked in disobedience, but God prepared good works for us to walk in. We followed the devil, but God seated us with Christ in heavenly places. We were children of wrath, but God has given us immeasurable riches of his kindness and grace towards us in Christ. We were counted with the sons of disobedience, but God now calls us his workmanship. I was proud. But now God gives me the strength daily to battle my pride. I was self-righteous. But God showed me that salvation is by grace and not my own working. I was apathetic towards God. But God has given me a love for him and his word. What is your story? Have you placed your faith and your hope in Christ Jesus for this kind of life? For the life in Christ? Are we trying to do life on our own? Are we trying to do enough good things? Are we trying to attend church enough and say enough prayers and, and just try to live our lives on our own, coming to God saying, God, now look at my life, look what I've done. Are we trying to do that to earn God's favor and approval? Or have we completely and totally trusted in God for that favor and approval by Him because of Christ Jesus? Have we done that? And that's what we're going to close with today. I want to ask you that. Is that your story? Is that the truth of your life? Have you put yourself in that position every single day? Say, Lord Jesus, I am not made right today because of what I do. I am made right today because of, Jesus, because of your son, Jesus Christ, and his death and his resurrection. So I ask you that today. I'm going to pray in closing, but I want you to consider those things. As we, as we go to take communion, I want you to ask yourself those questions. God, am I trusting in you or am I trusting in something else? So Lord, we just thank you today. God, that your grace is sufficient for us. That no matter where we've been or what we've done, Jesus, that your death and resurrection on the cross will cover all of our sins, not only in the past, but for eternity. And that will be the song we sing. So Lord, I pray, let that sing into our hearts. Help us to put our hope in you, Jesus. Help us to see glory in what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.